to Northway's D Group Podcast. I'm your host, Rodney Mills, and I'm so glad that you stopped by to visit. We're on a quest. We are apprenticing our lives to Jesus, learning to love, live, and lead like Him. We're nearing the end of our segment of the journey where we've been exploring many different spiritual disciplines, disciplines that lead to divine intimacy, spiritual transformation, and an other's reorientation. There are many, many other disciplines that we could have discussed. Countless books have been written on the subject, but I want to wrap up our list this session. Remember, one of the reasons we're making our way through these disciplines is to formulate what we've called a rule of life. The rule of life is a written or even unwritten commitment that you make to spiritual activities that will make up the rhythms of your life. And today, we get to talk about some disciplines that make sure we're being the church God's called us to be. Let's talk about the fellowship of one anothering. What vision do you have for the way Jesus did life? Now take a moment, just think about that. What images come to mind? What do you see him doing in his life? How did he spend his time? How did he do his work? You see, I think for many of us, and this is what I'm trying to get you to envision, we may think of Jesus as primarily an itinerant preacher, standing on hillsides, teaching to masses of people, healing multitudes of strangers. He's a busy man, bustling here and there. He's driven to accomplish his mission. And while Jesus certainly did do those things, the reality is that he actually lived a much slower and intentionally relational life. And as we'll soon see, Jesus knew that life in the kingdom was not simply about individuals finding personal salvation, but it was also about cultivating a rich experience of God's love within the context of his community. Now, I really hesitate to use that word community because it seems so cliche. We have an idea of what it's supposed to mean, and we bandy it around in churches like everyone knows what it means. But how often do we genuinely experience it? Here's the dictionary definition. It's a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. So no wonder the church embraces this word as an ideal. I mean, that really does sound like the life Jesus invited his followers into, doesn't it? It's a feeling of fellowship. It's an experience within a group of people that we actually feel. But you can feel community in your civic organization or your book club or or maybe even at work, as even in those environments you can share common attitudes, interests, and goals. But of course, true Christ-like community goes way, way deeper than that. So for a moment, we're going to circle back to one of our earlier lessons related to perfect Trinitarian love. All Jesus had ever experienced was a perfect loving relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. You see, this is the eternal relational existence from which Jesus comes into the physical world, an existence of perfect harmony with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is relational. God is in constant interaction within himself. It's mind-boggling, I know. But this is the picture Scripture paints for us nonetheless. And you can't skip over it just because it's hard to comprehend. 
But what it means for us, though, is that this is his M.O. This is his modus operandi. There is no reality for Jesus other than that of relationship. Jesus comes to deliver his kingdom gospel, and he does it not only in big public announcements and extraordinary miracles, but within the context of deeply cultivated relationships. It was as if he was saying, I'm inviting my people into this Trinitarian fellowship of love. Friends, the community we're seeking already exists in Christ at the cosmic level. Yes, Jesus is a friend of mine. But his longing is not to be a distant or casual friend, certainly not just a Facebook friend, but something much, much more. Now, we've been in and out of John 15 throughout our journey of discovering what it means to apprentice our lives to Jesus. And this is uh, part of his closing message to his closest companions, most of which he spent the last three and a half years of his life with, traveling from village to village, boating across the Sea of Galilee, going on retreats together, simply doing life together. And he's about to exit this physical realm, and thus he's giving us his farewell address. Though these close friends, they still had no idea what was really about to transpire. But listen to these words of intimacy that he shares with them. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my father. I have called you friends. I mean, has God ever said anything more beautiful than that? And in these final hours of his life, he's telling these guys, sitting around this last supper table, you are my friends. You're not some peons in a cosmic game. You're not relegated to fearful subordination by a slave-driving God of the universe. No, Jesus says, I've called you friend. And this is how Jesus did life. He did it within the context of loving relationships. And so, in our quest to love, live, and lead like Jesus, let's take a Quick journey once again through the Gospels to see this most important dynamic come alive. Now, the first thing we'll notice is that Jesus assembled a very special circle of friends. Mark tells us that at the very early stage of Jesus' ministry, he began inviting certain people into this circle of friends. Chapter 1 says uh, that it was first the net droppers. It was Peter and Andrew and James and John. Then in chapter 2, we see him inviting Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. There's a lot more to say about this particular friend, but we'll come back to that in just a few moments. And by chapter 3, this small group of, of friends begins to, to snowball, and Mark is referring to this big circle of friends as Jesus' disciples, and evidently it's turning into a rather large group. And so we pick it up in chapter 3 at verse 13. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. And Mark goes on to list the names of the twelve guys, even mentioning that Jesus gave them some nicknames like Rocky and Sons of Thunder. But notice in verse 14 again, he appointed twelve to be with him. That's the real key here. I mean, clearly, Jesus had a lot of people that I'm sure he would consider his friends. At very least, they were his close followers. 
But some of them, these 12 apostles, were extra special. We're not sure what made them special. It probably wasn't because they were extra smart or had great influence. No, it was, it was just that Jesus looked at them and he saw some kind of potential. And he wanted to personally invest in them. He wanted to train them up. And so he called them to be with him, to do their everyday walking around life with him. And you can't let this get by you, friend. Jesus wasn't just a, a disseminator of information. He came to live out the kingdom gospel by example. And the best way to convey what the, this kingdom lifestyle was all about was to get a group together and let them watch how it was done day in and day out. Jesus at the center of this society of friends. And he defined what their relationships to one another were supposed to look like. And still to this day, we are his community only if he is at the center of our relationships to one another. And I believe he's still calling groups together, and he's still showing us his way to live and love with one another. But of course, we know that Jesus had an even bigger purpose than just to have a close circle of friends. Jesus called his friends so he could equip them for greater works. Uh, again, we are at verse 13. Jesus went up the mountain, summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Clearly, Jesus was committed to transformational apprenticeship. He could preach to the masses as he did, but he also knew this basic math. What if it's not just me preaching, he might have said. What if I had 12 other guys trained enough to preach? Then we can preach the same message in 12 different places. And what if they were empowered to do what I do? Now clearly, there's a level of equipping and teaching at the apprentice level that can only be done with a limited number of people. For example, if I'm a plumber and I take apprentices with me to a job site to fix a leaky faucet, there are only so many people that will fit in the kitchen to observe. Only one or two will likely get to actually get hands-on experience this go-around. So Jesus calls this small group of friends together so he can train them to do what he does. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. And remember, while there is preaching to learn and power to cast out demons is given, Jesus never lets up on teaching them about the importance of relationships. And one of the most prominent ways he taught them in this way was found by noticing that Jesus was intentional and patient to develop relationships with outsiders. You see, Jesus was a friend to sinners. Notice these important views into the daily life of Christ. One day, Jesus was frustrated with the scribes and Pharisees. This is in Matthew 11. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We see what he's talking about in, in Luke 15. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. I mean, this was clearly a life pattern for Jesus. Back to the story of Jesus calling Matthew or Levi to come and follow. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again, taught the crowds that were coming up to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. 
Now watch this. Levi picks up on Jesus' lifestyle of hospitality and evangelism. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? And when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Now, this was Jesus at his best, in my opinion, doing life day in and day out, simply being with the people who needed him most, having lunch with outsiders, inviting them to be insiders. He wasn't worried about what religious folks thought about it. He knew the best way to get through to those disreputable sinners was to simply be intentional and patient, meal after meal, building relationships. And we're going to come back to talk a whole lot more about that in a few weeks. But right now, here's what we see. Jesus was the center of a transforming community. He was committed to apprenticing them in the ways of the kingdom. He was equipping them for greater works, showing them how to bring more people into his society of friends. But if we're not careful, we'll think all this activity is simply business, that Jesus was all about the job at hand. In today's terms, we might be guilty of saying, Let's just get to the Bible studies and the three-point strategy for church growth. And certainly, Jesus knew that there was a job to be done, but there was a very non-business side to his life as well. You see, Jesus cultivated deep and intimate friendships. We see this in relationships within that tight circle of his disciples and in other friendships as well. In John chapter 11, we see some powerful clues to the kind of relationships Jesus cultivated in the story of Lazarus. You're certainly familiar with the end of that story where Jesus has the stone rolled away and he calls for dead Lazarus to come forth. I mean, who could forget that one, right? But let's look a little bit closer. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 11, it tells the story. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love. The New Living Translation has the sisters saying, Lord, your dear friend is sick. And so the story goes that Jesus doesn't go immediately, but eventually does decide to head that way. And look what he says to his society of friends, to his disciples. He said this, and he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Clearly, Lazarus is a special friend. And then look at this next scene in verse 32. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When he saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And you can just sense his sorrow and anguish in the loss of his friend. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him come and see. And then probably the only verse next to John 3:16 that most people can quote for sure is this one. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, "See how he loved him." Peterson translated like this, "Look how deeply he loved him." Jesus was not all business. He had close and personal bonds of friendship. 
He connected with these friends at the deepest heart level. We also see with Peter, James, and John. I mean, for example, on the night of his arrest, Mark says that after the Last Supper that Jesus led his society of friends out for prayer. And then they came to a place called Gethsemane. He told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And what he does next is he leaves nine of his friends behind, but look what happens. Then he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled, and he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Do you see that? He's got these these three closest companions, and he's sharing even deeper personal struggles with them. I am deeply grieved. I'm struggling here, guys. And get this, it appears that Jesus may have even had a best friend. For just a bit earlier in the evening, we see back in the Gospel of John that Peter was trying to use this best friend to get more information out of Jesus. Listen to this, John 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? The one Jesus loved. And John uses this phrase more than once in his gospel. And come to find out, the one Jesus loved is none other than John himself. And Peter says, if anybody can get Jesus to tell us who the betrayer is, it's his best friend, John. So we see with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus cultivated deeply personal and intimate relationships. People he could confide in, special friends to share his sorrows, friends he could give himself to more completely. And so, having reflected on these many facets of loving relationships that Jesus cultivated, we return to his final address in John 15, from which we began this discussion. It should take on even more meaning in light of all that we've seen. This is John 15, verse 12. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, when Jesus says that to his society of friends, at this moment, around this Last Supper dinner table, they know exactly what he's talking about. He's lived in community with them for nearly three and a half years. They've experienced his deep and intimate love firsthand. They know what it looks like because he's been showing them all along. Love the way I've loved you. And so he continues on with his last words. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You see, that's the depth of friendship that Jesus expects us to cultivate. You are my friends if you do what I command. I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from the Father. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And then listen, this is what I command you. One more time, love one another. So how did they do? Did they follow through on his command? Did they have enough experience with the way Jesus loved to replicate it? Well, if we are to look at his circle of friends and the weeks and months and years immediately following Jesus' departure, that'd probably give us a, a strong indication as to what this one anothering might look like, right? How did they take what they had learned from Jesus about loving one another and apply it to their everyday walking around lives? 
Well, to get the answers to those questions, let's take a quick look at Acts chapter 2. Now, this should be a very familiar passage to you as it's commonly used as the definitive description of life in the earliest days of the church. I'm at verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were gathered together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What a, what a beautiful picture, huh? But very quickly, let's notice just a few things. Now, first we see the obvious, that they devoted themselves to one another within the community of Christ. Twice here, at least in the Christian Standard Bible I'm reading from, we see this phrase, devoted themselves, in verses 42 and 46. Your translation might say they were committed to one another. In other words, this was no casual association. They didn't just pop in if it was convenient. No, they were 100% devoted, not just to an institution, but to one another around the life and love and teachings of Christ. They were going all in together. It wasn't just a once a week thing either. They practically lived at one another's houses. They were truly doing life together, not unlike Jesus had modeled for the disciples. Now, of course, we could talk about all four of the things mentioned there in verse 42, the, the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread and prayer, but this idea of devoting themselves to the fellowship is particularly important to our discussion. Now, that, that word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. Koinonia, it's kind of fun to say. I mean, you might even want to say it out loud right there where you are. Koinonia. But the essential meaning of koinonia embraces concepts conveyed in the English terms community, communion, joint participation, sharing, and intimacy. It, it speaks of a, a special kind of bond and knitting together of spirits. And Pastor Peterson translates it simply as life together. And I would submit that koinonia is the spirit of one anothering among God's people. The spirit of one anothering among God's people. Not unlike the agape love that flows eternally within the Trinity, koinonia is the evidence of that same love flowing among God's people. It is the idealized vision of living out the command of Jesus to love one another as I have loved you. And like that early church, we need to make a conscious decision to choose it, to make a commitment to it, to be devoted to that kind of togetherness. I would submit even further that koinonia is a critical ingredient to spiritual transformation. Now, I love the way Robert Mulholland puts it. We can no more be conformed to the image of Christ outside corporate spirituality than a coal can continue to burn outside of the fire. You see, I fear this is one of the reasons many Christians don't experience everything that Christ himself had to offer. Popping in on Sunday mornings every once in a while to hear a good sermon and, and sing some worship songs is only one small ingredient in a journey of spiritual transformation. I'm convinced that's what the writer of Hebrews was trying to get us to, to do. Listen to his encouragement. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, 
and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, this is our reason for koinonia-type gatherings, to provoke one another to love and good works. These are the questions we need to be asking every week in our small group gatherings. How did you do with agape love with the people in your life this week? How did that show up in your actions? Or maybe we could ask, did you lay down your life for a friend this week? How can we go together into the world with agape love and good works? And then there's another point we see from Acts chapter 2. As we meet together in a koinonia kind of way, our homes become centers for spiritual transformation. You see, like the church described in Acts chapter 2, as we gather joyfully with one another around coffee tables and dinner tables with Jesus as the center of our focus, apprenticing our lives to him in community, provoking one another to love and good works, we are changed into more loving, surrendered Christ followers. And we become the presence of Christ in the world that God loves and sent his only son to save. Listen closely here, friends. This is not about locking ourselves away in a room with candles singing kumbaya. We are not an elitist country club. And as such, following the example of Jesus, we're inviting the outsider to join us. Acts 2 says that every day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. I mean, how do you think that was happening? Somebody was inviting the outsiders. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you had some disreputable guests over for dinner or with your small group? I mean, other than your own small group members, that is. <laughs> we're, we're gonna talk a lot more about this one in the weeks ahead, but for now, just remember this. For some people, the front door to the kingdom may just be the front door of your own house. Ah, oh, friends, can't you see this? Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The remaining authors of the New Testament would go on to embellish all that that command could, could mean. I've included a listing of those at the end of the transcript, so I want you to take a look at that when you can. But for right now, here's kind of a summary. They said things like this. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Serve one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Offer hospitality. And of course, they reiterate the original command to love one another. That makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? All those one-anothering verses add up. But that's what it takes to truly experience God's koinonia in our midst. So let's talk about how all of this might fit into your rule of life. Here are just a few more spiritual disciplines that ensure we are experiencing koinonia. The first discipline is that of corporate worship. Now, you might not think of going to church on Sunday as a spiritual discipline, But it really is. The weekly rhythm of celebrating God's goodness and greatness together with the family of God, that goes all the way back to the New Testament. But in today's culture, Sunday attendance seems to get more and more optional. But as an apprentice of Jesus, don't let it be that way for you. Secondly is a discipline uh, Dallas Willard calls soul friendships. He describes it as engaging fellow disciples of Jesus in prayerful conversation or other spiritual practices. In other words, it's a circle of friends that commit to living the Jesus way together, soul friendships. At Northway, you'll probably best experience that kind of koinonia in one of our small groups or even in these D groups. I hope you're experiencing that. Or it might even be an even smaller informal group of fellow believers that commits to prodding one another on in this Jesus way. 
And that leads us to another important discipline. It's the discipline of hospitality. We see this vividly demonstrated in the New Testament church. Their homes were wide open to one another and, and to outsiders. We could, and really we probably even should do that with our own homes. Maybe just a time or two a month, maybe even once a week, breaking bread with friends and outsiders around the table, inviting Jesus to take a seat at the table and allowing his spirit to foster an atmosphere of koinonia. And then there's one final thing I'd like for you to prayerfully consider. You see, to be this kind of people, this kind of koinonia community, is what I call the fellowship of one anothering. This is a deeper vision of what the local church is supposed to be. It's not an individualized, consumer-driven approach to finding a church that has the best and flashiest programs, the, the hippest band, or the trendiest approaches. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with all of those things, but, but this approach is to go against the grain of church shopping and church hopping and to commit you and your family to your bigger church family. It's not about attending the church that best meets your needs. It's about spending a lifetime in the trenches and on the couches of the Christ followers that God has put in your life. Like other monasteries, the Benedictine monks would take vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. But St. Benedict added a fourth vow, and he called it a vow of stability. Listen to how one of the orders describes it on their website. We vow to remain all of our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving. Now, of course, I'm not proposing that we all move in together on some compound, but there is something very appealing and deeply sincere about this concept that seems very New Testament to me, this vow of stability. Yes, there are times when God leads us into new chapters of life, but I don't think they happen near as often as our restless hearts may think, though I've certainly been guilty of hightailing it out of Dodge when things didn't go to suit me in past churches. But this is how I put it to Northway just a few months ago. I just want you to know that until God says otherwise, I've taken this vow of stability to stay here with you, to give my whole life for your sake, to live together, pray together, work together, relax together, play Mexican train dominoes together, serve our seniors together, to invite our unchurched friends into each other's homes, to patiently serve alongside you as we discover the lives we were meant to live, to grow along with you into the people God wants us to be. In a nutshell, the vow of stability that I've taken is this. This place and these people in the presence of Christ is enough. Oh, we may not be perfect in every way, but with Jesus at the center and our commitment to love one another and spurring one another on in love and good works, this place is enough. And it'll be okay with me if we live and die together here, whatever else God has in store. So perhaps you'll want to consider making that vow with us. 
I encourage you today, friend, join the fellowship of one another. Let's experience the power of koinonia as God knits our hearts and lives together through his spirit.